All right. Good evening, everybody. How are y'all doing tonight? Okay. So mediocre. Nice. Good. Cameron's doing awesome. It's good to see you guys again. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, my name is Joel. I get the opportunity to serve as a community pastor here at Vista. Um, that mostly means that I oversee many of the ways to get connected beyond Sunday morning. And so if you're a part of our church and you're struggling with getting connected beyond Sunday morning, obviously you're here at the table, which is great, but table only happens once a month. And so if you're looking to get more connected at Vista, um, I'm a good person to talk to as, as well as my team. We're usually at the Next Steps area, just right out here, out these doors to the left between services. So if there's anything that we can ever do to serve you, to help you get more connected at Vista, we would love to know about that. Um, if it's your first time tonight, welcome. We're really glad that you're here. If you're someone's guest or if you've popped in, we're really grateful to have you. And so this is my third time to get to uh, share the scripture with you guys, which I'm really excited about. So if you have a Bible, you can grab it. The verses will be on the screen. We're going to read them in just a sec, but you can go ahead and turn to Acts chapter 15. This semester, I get to be the first person to start a new series, I guess, um, but just some teachings this semester on the topic of community or um, which is a very commonly used word, of course, around churches. But I like to say life together. How are we going to live life together in the context of a local church like Vista? What's that life going to look like? What, what are we going to mandate about that? What are we all going to bring to the table? So not only tonight, but in the future, these next few months, you're going to get to hear several people speak into what our lives together in Christ can and should look like. And so tonight, um, I'm going to get us started off. Some of you may have noticed or remembered um, not too long ago, I feel like it was this year, but I could be wrong about that. But the United States Surgeon General, this was almost like a COVID-style press conference, came out to talk about a pressing health matter in the United States. But it was not COVID or some other new mystery variant, one of which apparently is running wild even as I speak. It was about the crisis in the United States of isolation and loneliness. Did anybody see this? See any clips of it? Remember this? U.S. Surgeon General came out and said, we have a public health crisis. And the basis of that crisis is increasing loneliness and isolation in our society. This is a great, super encouraging watch if you need something to do after you go home tonight is to watch the U.S. Surgeon General talk about the crisis of isolation and loneliness. So I highly commend it. I grabbed a couple of graphs that he used in that presentation. The first one I wanted to show you is national trends for social connection. Social isolation is on an increase 24 hours per month. This is from 2003 to 2020. Household family, social engagement is decreasing. Companionship is decreasing. Social engagement with friends decreasing. Household family social engagement, decreasing. Social engagement with others, decreasing. Everything is decreasing. This does not look very positive. And the next chart is even more amazing because he made another graph that it says, lacking in social connection is as dangerous as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. That's amazing. I know, I was astonished by that particular graph, which is why I brought it to you tonight. What that has to do with 
is the mortality rate that we're seeing increase dramatically driven by what is now called deaths of despair. The reason that first number is higher than cigarette smoking, drinking alcoholic drinks, six drinks a day, physical activity, obesity, air pollution, the reason reason that social isolation is above those in the mortality rate is because we're seeing large numbers of deaths of despair driven by loneliness and lack of social connection. And so it's appropriate for us to spend a semester talking about what the Bible has to say about our lives together in the mandate of community in the context of the local church and among the Jesus people. So that's what we're going to do. I'm going to get us started. This is not a weird place to start because when you think about Christian anthropology, anthropology being the the study of human origins, Christian anthropology being how Christians understand human origins, we're talking about um, a very important theological reality called the Imago Dei, the image of God. The Bible teaches, the Christian story tells us that human beings are created in the image of God, in the image of that God in whom we were created is triune. It's a very complex and mysterious thing, the Trinity. We're not going to talk about tonight. I'm going to punt that to Austin or somebody else. But one thing we can say about this notion that God is one God expressed in three persons is that for all time, for all of eternity, God exists as persons in community. You ever thought about that? That's some Christian anthropology. That's what Christians believe about the origins of humanity, that human beings were created in the image of a God that eternally exists as persons in community. You were created in that one's image. Not only that, that has something to say about who God is, but Christian anthropology also teaches us about what God did. And what he did was, create some amazing things, all of which he called good. And then he created these human beings. And I talked about this actually last time I was here. He created these human beings. And about those human beings, they weren't just good like all the rest of creation. They were very good. And then something happened that was not good. It might not even be what you think. The first time in the story that something is described as not good is man being alone. That's the first thing in creation that's not good, is man alone. And so when we mine the depths of Christian anthropology, when we think about who God is, persons eternally dwelling in community, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit for all time. When we think about what God has done and what he has created, that he created a world in which it is not good for man to be. We have a lot of riches to plumb this semester when we think about what God has to say about community and our lives together. Amen? So you ready to do that for a few minutes from Acts chapter 15? Me too. So let's read Acts chapter 15. We'll start off by reading verses 1 through 19. Acts chapter 15, verse 1. Then certain individuals came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. 
And after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go to Jerusalem to discuss this question with the apostles and the elders. So they were sent on their way by the church. And as they passed through both Phoenicia and Samaria, they reported the conversion of the Gentiles and brought great joy to all the believers. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and the elders. And they all reported that what God that had done with them. But some believers who belonged to the sect of the Pharisees stood up and said, it is necessary for them to be circumcised in order to keep the law of Moses. The apostles and the elders met together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and he said to them, my brothers, You know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of the good news. Everybody say good news. And become believers. And God, who knows the human heart, testified to them by giving them the Holy Spirit, just as he did to us, and in cleansing their hearts by faith. He has made no distinction between them and us. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? Man, putting God to the test, speaking to a bunch of Jewish background Christians has some real wilderness associations. Putting God to the test is not a good thing in the history of Israel. Why are you putting God to the test? By placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors nor we have been able to bear. On the contrary, we believe that we will be saved through the grace of the Lord Jesus just as they will. The whole assembly kept silence and listened to Barnabas and Paul as they told of all the signs and wonders that God had done through them among the Gentiles. After they finished speaking, James replied, my brothers, listen to me. Simeon, that's Peter, has related how God first looked favorably upon the Gentiles to take from among them a people for his name. This agrees with the words of the prophets as it is written. After this, I will return. I will rebuild the dwelling of David, which has fallen from its ruins, and I will rebuild it and I will set it up so that all other peoples, everybody say all other peoples, may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles over whom my name has been called. Thus says the Lord who has been making these things known from long ago. Therefore, James says, I have reached the decision that we should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God. And we'll stop right there and finish the last two verses in a moment. So tonight, I got two parts for you. Part one, we're about to dive into. Then we'll have some question and discussion time at our tables. Then I'll come back for part two, more time for question and discussion at tables. And then I'll come back and we'll have communion together. Does that sound good? All right, so part one. This message is about the heart of Christian community. And by heart, I mean the thing that is central to Christian community or the thing that is foundational. Actually, this story appears right in the heart of the book of Acts, which is the story of the earliest Christians and how they expanded and how they grew. When we think about the heart of Christian community, this moment is a critical moment in Christian history. Things could have gone south very quickly when we think about what Christian community was going to look like in the future had this 
conflict, they said there was no small dissension and debate. This was a big, big, mega argument, not among people who believed in Jesus and people who didn't, but among people who believed in Jesus, some from a Jewish background and some who were Gentiles. No small dissension and debate. And the problem that arose was, how are we going to know who truly is the people of God? That's really the question that we're going to answer here for a minute is, who are the people of God? Is it the people that Jesus Christ has been revealed to by the Father, by his good, gracious, kind heart, who have believed in the gospel, the good news, the message of Jesus, received that message by grace, the grace of God, and believed it and received it by faith, is it those people or is it those people who receive this message by grace through faith and then have to do some other stuff on top of that to be real Christians? Who's it gonna be? Who are the people of God? How are they going to be defined? Verse one says, certain individuals came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Now this problem is pervasive throughout the New Testament. There's another example of this very same thing in Galatians chapter two, where Paul has a confrontation with these same people while he's out teaching the gospel and doing ministry. In that scenario, these people were actually referred to as the circumcision party, which is a very interesting name for your party. I'm thinking of all the, unfortunately, messaging and marketing that you might use if you're a part of the circumcision card. And this is all kind of weird, actually. But they felt very strongly about this, so much so that they had become organized into a definable, discernible party. So they were known as the circumcision party. You might hear them referred to as Judaizers, people who believed that you had to be circumcised in order to be saved. And Paul's constantly confronting these guys, in fact, in some ways, it's, it's really sad because Paul would go in and preach the gospel and these guys would come in right behind Paul after he left and try to tell all the people who had believed in Jesus that, hey, that's great that you believe in Jesus, but let's get real. We know what you got to do now. You got to become Jewish first and then you can be saved. It's a big problem. When we think about the ethnocentrism, right? Fun word, ethnocentrism. You want to try it? Ethnocentrism. Again, we're struggling tonight. I think we might need to go to coffee uh, at the table. It's my recommendation. Ethnocentrism. We think that our people are first. Our people are most important. Our people are at the center. Ethnocentrism. One of the biggest struggles in the New Testament for believers in Jesus was overcoming the ethnocentrism of the Jewish people. And one of the things I wanted to do for a moment is just, again, we hear some of these words, we see some of these dynamics, and it's just like, oh, these guys are so stupid. Of course, you guys can't be the center of all things. Of course, you can't add something to the gospel and say, sure, by grace, you have received the gospel and you have believed it by faith, but now you have to do something else to be saved. Of course, we totally get that. But like step back into the mind of these earliest believers who come from a Jewish background. Some of them, it says, were actual Pharisees. I don't know if you noticed that. There were some Pharisees who believed in Jesus and became Christians. They took their Jewish faith very seriously. 
And you can understand if you consider their story why they might have struggled with ethnocentrism because they were a people who by the sheer grace of God became God's chosen people. It wasn't because they were stronger or better. In fact, in the Torah, this is talked about many different times. How it wasn't because the people of Israel were amazing that God looked down and said, hey, those people are awesome. Those are gonna be my people. It's through them I'm gonna reveal everything. No, they were the weakest people. In fact, uh, a couple weeks ago, Austin talked about Abraham and his call to follow Yahweh. And if you read uh, in some of the genealogies, which again are some of the most difficult and probably things that you mostly skip over, but one genealogy has the genealogy of Abraham and it says that his father, Terah, worshiped other gods. God didn't choose Abraham because his family was awesome. It was this sheer act of grace that the Jewish people were chosen. So God chose these people who were weak and gave them the gift of his presence and these incredible promises and made this covenant with them. He gives them the law, which serves to separate them from many of the other peoples on the earth and around their neighborhood at the time. He demonstrates his power. He uh, delivers them when they get in trouble, right? He gives them a land unto themselves. And it was actually through them that was promised that there would one day be this Messiah who was going to make everything right. So if you believed all those, all those things, if you thought like, wow, God chose us to be his unique people on the earth. And it's not like other people don't matter, but we're kind of important. If God gave us the law, he could have given it to other people, but he gave it to us. If the Messiah is going to come from our people, you can understand how you might have a bit of self-importance or self-inflation when you think about your people, ethnocentrism. That's what's happening in Acts chapter 15. People are saying, hey man, if you wanna follow Jesus, that's awesome. I'm so glad you believe the good news. These people are saying, I believe it too. But if you really wanna be saved, you have to become like us. That is become Jewish. That is you have to be circumcised in order to be saved. And that's what all this dissension and debate is about. The apostles, when they hear this, they start recalling what God has done. This is in verse six. The apostles and the elders met together to consider this matter. And after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said, my brothers, you know that in the early days, God made a choice among you that I should be the one through whom the Gentiles would hear the message of the good news and become believers. Again, no Jewish person who's struggling with ethnocentricity thinks that the gospel should not be preached to the Gentiles. They all believe like, yes, Peter, go preach the gospel to the Gentiles. But what do they think? Whenever they hear that, make sure they become exactly like us, right? They want them to hear the good news. These people believe the good news. They identify as Christians from a Jewish background. And so they want to add to the gospel. And so what did Peter say? Verse eight, God knows the human heart. God testified like God bore witness and testified when he gave Gentiles the Holy Spirit in the same way that he did to us. He didn't require anything extra of the Gentiles in order to receive the Holy Spirit is what Peter's saying, right? And he cleansed their hearts by faith. Remember, we we're talking about by grace through faith. He cleansed their hearts by faith. He made no distinction between them and us. Now, therefore, why are you putting God to the test? by placing on the neck of the disciples a yoke that neither our ancestors or us have been able to bear. On the contrary, we believe that we will be saved 
through the grace of our Lord Jesus just as they will. So the disciples, they just land that salvation comes by grace through faith, period, full stop, no notes, 100. That's it. This is how salvation comes to mankind, by the grace of God, a sheer act of grace, not because of anything that any human or any people have done. It's a sheer act of grace on God's part. No one deserves it. All of us are like sheep who have gone astray, the scripture says. No one is righteous, no, not one. In this sheer act of grace, God sends his son, Jesus Christ. I'm gonna preach for a second, if you don't mind. But I don't know if you remember that day that we're about to celebrate here in a few months about the birth of Jesus. One of the great moments also in human history I'm sorry, I always want to say the greatest, the greatest. Let's talk about it, debate it. I don't know, discuss it at your tables. The greatest moment, the angels make themselves known in the heavens and they deliver a message from God. Peace on earth, goodwill towards men. This is God's message to humanity that has become his enemies. He wasn't their enemies, they were his enemies. And he comes to humanity, to his enemies, who have rejected him, who have rebelled and usurped, who insist on defining good and evil for themselves. God comes to the rebellious, usurping lot. And what does he say? Peace on earth. God's foreign policy toward rebellious humanity is peace through Jesus. That's what we call the gospel. And it's in that God-man, Jesus Christ, through his birth, Through his life, and by his life, his words, his works, his ways, through his death, his burial, his resurrection from the dead, and his ascension, that God is making all things new. The gospel, the good news about Jesus. God's making all things right. He's restoring the relationship that was broken in the fall that's affected all of humanity. The things that you hope and dream for that are pieces of your humanity that feel like they have been lost, but you know that they are real in Jesus. God is working through him to give those things back to you. Peace on earth is not, you know, beauty pageant, answer to a question, what do you want to see? Peace on earth. Peace on earth is shalom, comprehensive Human flourishing. God comes in Jesus and his message to humanity is, let me restore everything that's been broken. Let me give everything back to you, humanity, that has been lost. This is what the apostles believed. And they said, that is a sheer act of grace. And you can have access to that transformational restoration of your relationship with God and your, the fullness of your humanity being restored in Jesus by faith in him, period. We don't add anything else. There's nothing else you have to do. The work of Jesus is finished. Amen? Amen. That is what we call the gospel when you hear that around here. That message that I just delivered to you that they were debating vigorously about in Acts chapter 15, that's the good news about Jesus. And it's available to every single person in this room, in Jesus. And you don't have to work for it. You don't have to do anything for it. 
It's a sheer act of the grace of God, his loving kindness toward you. You just receive it by faith. The last thing I'll say before we dive into some questions is I just wanted you to take note of the shape that the grace of God through faith took in their midst. Very quickly, it says in verse eight, and God who knows the human heart testified to them. So God's bearing witness that these things are true by giving them the Holy Spirit. One of the ways that they knew that these things were real and happening. And again, we talk about these things like grace and I've just tried to literally quantify what that very spiritual churchy word means all the things that God is up to, the fullness of his steadfast love and loving kindness towards you. And then some very specific things like in this text, like the Holy Spirit, the very spirit of God indwelled people in the same way that God's presence in the Old Testament came and dwelt in the tabernacle. Now we have become like little temples for the Holy Spirit, the very presence of God inside of us. And we have been united with Christ. And this is part of the shape that the grace of God received by faith, took among these particular people was the reception of the Holy Spirit. Not only that, but there were signs and wonders that happened among them. God was showing off among them. People were being freed from evil oppression, demonic oppression. People were being healed in their midst. These are things I personally do not believe that God has gotten out of the business of. I believe that God is well pleased to do amazing things in our midst to give you like a little foretaste of the life that is to come when the fullness of the kingdom of heaven comes on earth as it is in heaven. God wants to give you a little preview of that now. And he's all about that in the scriptures, in the ministry of Jesus, all around the new church. And this is showing that, hey, you can have these kind of things, the the kingdom of God. Shalom, comprehensive human flourishing. It's been done as an act of sheer grace and you can receive it by faith and you can see things like this in your midst. And they kept looking back on the scriptures. The Holy Spirit was one of the shapes that grace took. The signs and wonders was part of the shape that God's grace took. The scriptures and the interpretation, I mean, really, frankly, the radical reinterpretation of scriptures centered on Jesus was one of the shapes that grace took in their midst. James stands up and he starts quoting from Amos chapter nine. And he says this, he says, man, all these things that we're seeing in the power of the Holy Spirit, these signs and wonders, these Gentiles receiving the spirit and they don't have to do something else. They just get it just like us. This is like in line with the things that I've read in the prophets. And he says, it's written, I will return. I will rebuild the dwelling of David, which has fallen from its ruins, I will rebuild it, I will set it up so that all other peoples may seek the Lord. Not do X, Y, Z, and then they can seek the Lord. This is what God's always, his plan. Even all the Gentiles over whom my name has been called, thus does the Lord who has been making these things known from long ago. And so the bottom line on the response of the apostles to the circumcision party the Judaizers, the brothers who came and said, in order to be saved, you have to be circumcised in keeping with the law of Moses. The apostles says, no, it is by grace through faith that you are saved. And that includes the Gentiles. And so very simply, they said, Jesus, 
plus anything equals nothing. That's what they decided, and it just got decided. And then unfortunately, in ways that are maybe similar, and probably many ways dissimilar, we keep doing the same kind of things that they did. We keep trying to add to the gospel. We keep saying, sure, that's nice. Here's what God has done as a sheer act of grace, and you can receive it by faith, but then you've got to do this and change that and be that and do that, and then you can be saved. We keep doing just what they did. We keep adding to the gospel. No. Jesus plus anything equals nothing, right? That's part one. So I have some questions for you to discuss at your table. I would love for you to take a few minutes and talk about some of these things that we've just talked about. And then I'm going to come up. And guess what? This is not even over. I have like a part two that's buck wild. And so I'll come back in just a minute and we'll talk about part two. Sound good? All right. Awesome. All right, you guys, I'm sorry to interrupt. We got to get going because there's a part two. Next time when you come back to the questions, you can take them in any order. So if you like question, the third question better than the first one, you can start with the third. It's totally fine. Also, the goal is not necessarily to finish all the questions, obviously. The goal is to have a great discussion. So I hope that you had some great discussion. So let's wrap this up. Here's the most interesting thing I think in this whole text is actually part two. Watch this. So we read, uh, we ended in verse 19. I'm going to read 19 again, and we'll read through 21. So this is when James expresses the decision that they had made in verse 19. Therefore, I have reached the decision that we should not. Everybody say should not. We should not trouble those Gentiles who are turning to God and trouble them with what? With the requirement that they become Jewish before they can become Christian, right? Right? But then verse 20 trips me out because he said, we should not trouble the Gentiles. And then verse 20 starts with, but we should. Everybody say, but we should. should. There's a should not in verse 19 and there's a should in verse 20. And I find that so interesting. We should not trouble the Gentiles who are turning to God, verse 19, but we should write to them to abstain only from things polluted by idols and from fornication and from whatever has been strangled and from blood. For in every city for generations past, Moses has had those who proclaim him, for he has been read aloud every Sabbath in the synagogues. There's a should not and a should, and I'm just wondering if you're like me, if it's like, how can that possibly be after all of this dissension and debate in the Jerusalem council? It seemed like they were saying, we're not gonna say anything to these Gentiles We're not going to make them do anything. And so after all of this, we made the decision that we are not going to trouble the Gentiles, but we are going to tell them to do X, Y, Z. How's that possible? How does it even work? How can you have a should not in verse 19 and a should in verse 20? Does that negate everything I said? Does this mess up our great equation? Jesus plus anything equals nothing. Does this negate that? Want to hear something even more crazy? Turn over to Acts chapter 16. I didn't put this on the screen, so hopefully you brought your Bible. Bring your Bible. Acts chapter 16, verse 3. I don't even have time to read all this. Just verse 3. Paul wanted Timothy to go with him on a journey. And he took him and had him circumcised because of the Jews who were in those places. 
That's Acts chapter 16, verse 3. That's what happened immediately after Paul left the Jerusalem council. After everything we just talked about, Paul took Timothy and Timothy got circumcised on their very next trip. Does that freak anybody else out? Is that intriguing to anybody else out? Intriguing to anybody else? Do you, does it make you think that always happens? It's the devil, man. When I really get going, that always happens. They always tell me I don't plug my mic in, but I do. I don't know what it is. How is it possible that in verse 19 you have a should not and in verse 20 you have a should? How is it possible like the door hits Paul and Timothy in the rear end on the way out of the Jerusalem council and they go straight to a circumcision clinic? How? We shouldn't, but we should. Part of the reason that doesn't make sense to us is because we don't understand the difference between earning and effort. The reason that whole scenario is incoherent to us and we don't understand how verse 19 could be a should and verse 20 could be a should is because we don't have a good grasp of the difference between earning and effort. So watch this. I brought a friend with me tonight, Dallas Willard, sadly recently passed away, but wrote one of the most important books I believe in the history of Christianity called The Divine Conspiracy. And he talks often about grace. And here's what he says. He says things like this. I think we have it. The first quote from Dallas Willard. I know it by heart if we don't. Boom. Oh, wait, that's the second one. Yes. Watch this. Listen to this, dude. This is really important. This is how you make sense of a shouldn't in verse 19 and a should in verse 20. The path to spiritual growth in the riches of Christ is not a passive one. Grace is not opposed to effort. Everybody say grace is not opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. Effort is action. Earning is attitude. That's the difference between verse 19 and verse 20. In verse 19, James said, no one in this room, Jew or Gentile, can earn their salvation. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. And in verse 20, they said, you guys need to put some effort into how we're going to be together in the same community. And that's the difference. There's a difference between earning and effort. That's why Paul went out and Timothy was not coerced. He agreed to be circumcised because he knew he was going to be in places with Jewish believers and that that was going to be a stumbling block. And so Timothy didn't do that so that he could earn his salvation. He did that so that he could be, with community, be in community with people who were radically different than him. There's a difference between earning and effort. That's the difference between verse 19 and verse 20. And this is a radical idea. In fact, this is what we're talking about right now in the series at Vista on Sunday morning about you are not your own. This seems so crazy to most people because they've received a gospel of grace, rightly so, that says no human being, no one in this room can do anything to earn their salvation. You can't do anything to earn your salvation. But then people think after that, well, there must not be anything for me to do. No, man, that's not it. That's not what all this is about. If that was the message, there wouldn't be all this stuff after the gospels. Jesus wouldn't have been doing all of the things he was doing. The path 
to the riches of Christ is not a passive path. It's an active one. Effort is required. Does that effort earn your salvation? No, don't get it twisted. Jesus plus anything equals nothing. No one can earn their salvation. Nevertheless, the path to the riches of Christ is not a passive one. Grace is opposed to earning, but not to effort. Earning is an attitude. Effort is action, right? Jesus was a man of action. The apostles were men and women of action, right? Another one from Dallas Willard. Watch this. Also one of my favorites. Couldn't let it go tonight. Gospels of sin management presume a Christ with no serious work other than redeeming humankind. And they foster vampire Christians. Everybody say vampire Christians. Here's vampire Christians. You just want a little blood for your sins, but you don't want anything more to do with Jesus until you get to heaven. Dallas Willard, vampire Christians. They think, well, since I can't do anything to be saved, there must not be anything for me to do. Wrong. The path to riches in Christ is not a passive one. You weren't just saved from something, you were saved for something, right? Grace is opposed to earning. You cannot earn your salvation, but it is not opposed to effort. And so the last thing I'll say about this is that the thing that's in view when there's a a should not in verse 19 and the should in verse 20 is in verse 19, salvation is is in view. That's why they say we should not trouble the Gentiles because we're not going to require anything beyond the grace of God through their faith in order for them to be saved. So they have salvation in view. In verse 20, something like supper is in view. Table fellowship with people who are radically different than you. And that in order to come to that table, actually that you ought to put some effort and consider, I mean, first of all, that you're not going to go to a table just made up of people exactly like you. Number one, that Christianity entails tables that are radically inclusive, that are rooted in mutual submission to one another, where everybody's putting in effort. And by the way, a lot of that effort, I don't know if you noticed, has to do with holiness stuff. What do they say? Like, you guys, you Gentiles, we should write to them in verse 20 and tell them to abstain from things polluted by idols. Everything that comes after this is rooted in idolatry and temple worship. So all these little practices, the sexual immorality, the eating blood that was strangled and all that stuff that seems really weird to us, all those things are associated with temple worship. And really the, the thing is the idolatry and the association with temple worship, they're saying Gentiles, Moses, people, the Jewish people are in all these cities. They're, they're in the synagogues. They've been hearing his teaching. And if they become Christian and you become a Christian by the grace of God through faith, and then you guys try to come down and sit at the table, but you're participating in actively in idolatry, we will not be able to sit together. So you ought to think about that and you ought to put some effort into your holiness so that you can sit at a table with your Jewish brothers and sisters. We're getting ready to talk about first Peter. It's going to be awesome. After we finish this series, you are not your own. We're going to go through first Peter. One of the great strategies about first Peter, first Peter is about how the Jesus people who were cast out to the margins of society can live faithfully. And one of the strategies for living a a flourishing, a beautiful, a holy, 
a victorious life in 1 Peter is that we would live lives together marked by holiness. That requires some effort on your part. That's not so that you can earn your salvation. You can't, no one can earn their salvation, but that doesn't mean that no effort is required in your relationship with Jesus. Effort is definitely required. And if you fail to attend to matters of holiness, it will prevent our tables from flourishing and being diverse and being unified and being beautiful and bearing witness to the riches of the gospel of Jesus Christ if we don't pay attention to things like that. And so that's why they said, no, we're not going to trouble them. No one can earn their salvation, but we're definitely going to tell them that they need to think about matters of holiness when they come to the table with their Jewish brothers and sisters. What was in view was not salvation. In verse 20, it was supper. Radically inclusive table fellowship marked by mutual submission to one another where people are considering other people better than themselves. And they're thinking, when I come to the table, I don't want to bring something that might make somebody else stumble or might make them feel unwelcome. I'm going to put some effort into my coming to the table so that we can be one in Christ and be diverse at the table. That's a beautiful thing. The very last thing is these little ordinary gatherings that emerged. You see hints of it throughout Acts. In the very beginning of Acts, the table fellowship that they had that was marked by prayer and worship and radical generosity and hospitality and devotion to the teaching of scripture, that gets put on steroids when all these Gentiles start coming into church and they take this kind of teaching seriously and people start gathering at radically inclusive tables in the name of Jesus and they start submitting to one another in love and they start putting effort into thinking about who's in and who's out and who's welcome and who's not. And when that gets put on steroids, it, like these little ordinary supper gatherings change the world. I brought you something tonight. I was just reading a book that I highly commend. I personally am loving it. Um, it's called Caesar and the Lamb. The very specific content of the book is about early Christian attitudes on war and military service. That's mainly what the book is about. That's not what I'm bringing to you tonight, although that's a really interesting conversation. When he was, the author of the book was outlining some of the early beliefs and the, the outlook of Roman authorities upon the earliest Christians, he had language from the first letter from a non-Christian source about Christians. The very first one that we have in history. It was from around the time, this guy, his name was uh, Gaius Plinius. And he was the gover governor of an area in north of, uh, northern Turkey. Um, I think it might've been called Byzantium or something. Forgive me if I'm wrong about that if you're like a history buff. And he was sent there by Emperor Trajan who trusted him to kind of get things in order. And part of getting things in order there was to monitor this rapidly emerging numbers of Christians in that location, northern Turkey, places that Paul had traveled from and churches had been started. And so again, 111 to 113 AD, we're talking something like, what, 70, 80 years after the time of Jesus, so like a generation after Jesus, and this is what when he started examining these Christians and what they were doing, and he reported back to Emperor Trajan, he wrote him a letter. Here's what he said about the Christians. The earliest non-Christian source 
about who Christians were and what they did. They meet regularly on a given day before dawn, singing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God. And they also swear a sacred oath. We'll have to talk about that another time, the sacramentum. And they decided we're not going to commit any robbery. We're not going to commit any theft or robbery, any crime, any theft or robbery. We're not going to commit adultery. Does that sound familiar based on Jerusalem Council stuff? We're going to write to them and say, hey, y'all should not. We're not going to break an agreement. We're not going to fail to return a deposit that's entrusted to us when asked to do so. And then when that ceremony is finished, by the way, that was like their gathered worship ceremony that you just heard. This is the first non-Christian source about what Christians were doing in the earliest times of the Roman Empire. That's what their gathered worship looked like. And then after they did that, when this ceremony was finished, it was their custom to go their separate ways and to come together again later to take food of an ordinary and simple kind, pad thai, (laughs) raising canes. Do you have any idea that when you come here and you do something like we've just done and you sit at a radically inclusive table in the name of Jesus and you welcome one another as Christ has welcomed us and you share a meal together, you are joining in like one of the most powerful forces the universe has ever seen. Those little Table gatherings on the margins of society change the whole world. Like we are standing when we eat our pad thai and we sing our songs and we have our discussion. We're like standing on their shoulders. It's because of their faithfulness that we're here right now. That activity changed the world. So coming to the table, I mean, you probably didn't have all a category for this when you came tonight. You're just like, eh, eh, maybe, I don't know, maybe, I don't know. What are we having tonight? I don't know who's going to be there. I don't know. No, dude. Come participate in the kingdom of God. Come be a part of the remaking of the world and eat pad thai. Yes? That's what we're doing. So, part two, have some discussion and then we'll come back and have communion together. We're going to take communion together, and I'm really grateful to also have the chance not only to share the word with you, but also to lead you in communion. And so at your table, you have communion elements, you have a cup, you have bread, you'll tear some bread off, dip it in the cup, pass it around. It'll be a beautiful thing and a really awesome way for us to take communion together. But before we do that, I just want to give you a few reminders about communion. Some of them are very relevant to what we've just talked about. So listen to this. The Lord's Supper, communion, Eucharist, depending on your background, or maybe none of those things are words that you've heard before, is a celebration of God's grace, not human achievement. It is a means of grace through which God acts to seal the promises of the gospel. The power of this celebration, listen to this, does not lie in our ability to think hard about Jesus' death or our sin. Watch this. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, not understand this in remembrance of me. There's power in the doing, effort. God uses this celebration to nourish and sustain us as believers. That's number one. Number two, and I have three. 
The Lord's Supper is not an end in itself. It is always, it always points us beyond itself to celebrate God's grace, steadfast love, and faithfulness, which we have all just hopefully drunk very deeply of. This does not mean that the physical aspects of the celebration are incidental or unimportant. The Lord's Supper should be a celebration fitting to the abundant grace of God offered in Jesus Christ. The last one. The Lord's Supper is deeply personal, but never private. It is a communal action of the gathered congregation which represents the church in all times and places. It is a meal. Meals are more than elements. Meals have a sense of presence and occasion. This is not only about what we are eating, but who we are eating with. Greco-Roman meals, the kind that those little simple Christian meals totally co-opted and subverted. Greco-Roman meals were transactional. You do me a meal, I do a meal for you. Oh, you want me? Oh, I gotta do this for you? Transactional. They were competitive. Oh, whose house is better? Whose stuff is better? Who's a better person? Who's more important? Who's richer? They were defined by sameness. People of the same race. People of the same class. Meals in the kingdom of God, as we have just been talking about, are marked by mutual submission to one another and radical inclusivity, amen? So I'm gonna say these words of invitation, which is an invitation for you to take communion, and then after I say them, you're gonna break the bread and pass the cup, and then we'll have some announcements and be done. But you know what would be really awesome tonight? If someone was here and you have never received the grace of God that we've just been talking about, and you've never believed by faith What if you took communion for the first time as someone who believes these things were true? That would be amazing. And God help me, I hope I get to know about it if that happens. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the gospels tell us that on the first day of the week, that day on which our Lord rose from the dead, he appeared to some of his disciples. And the scripture says this, Jesus was made known to them in the breaking of bread. I'm gonna say that again. Jesus was made known to them in the breaking of bread is what the scripture tells us. So for anyone in this room who wants to enter into a greater revelation of Jesus Christ, I say to you, you may now partake. You are welcome to the joyful feast of our Lord Jesus, amen? Y'all can take communion.